0: I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah,
2: oh yeah. About 15 minutes before it happened, Ken I've Mansfield feeling, thought, I've got a feeling. Maybe not those exact words, uh, but Ken's internal dialogue was something akin to that. An American businessman in London Ken was in the habit of wearing a watch, but he honestly can't recall the exact time it started. It was lunchtime. Once he was out on the rooftop, Ken saw office workers and shop clerks on the street below, heading out in search for a bite. And in 1960s Great Britain, lunchtime meant one o'clock. They'd had to reinforce the roof to hold the extra weight and remove a skylight to hoist up Paul McCartney's bass rig and Billy Preston's electric piano. According to Ken, the work was quiet and efficient. He had barely noticed it that morning as he worked away in his first floor office. There was some talk of starting at noon, but there was a lot to do. So, about a quarter to one, January 30th, 1969, as he ascended the final flight of stairs and started up the access ladder to the roof of 3 Saville Row, Mayfair, London, that's when Ken Mansfield said to himself, I've got a feeling this was no longer rumor or idle talk, and there had been a lot of that the last few days. This was going to happen. For the first time in years, the Beatles were going to play as a band before a live audience, and Ken had a front-row seat and a backstage pass. Yeah, yeah.
0: Everybody Everybody
2: Everybody had a hard year. Everybody had a good time. When Ken recalls the days leading up to the Rooftop concert, that John Lennon phrase pops into his head. Ken's book, The Roof, opens with a discussion of 1968, and he's right. Everybody had a hard year. We've said it a few times now too, 68 was a rough one, in America and around the world. In Beatles' world, 1967's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band had been a tough act to follow. For as long as anyone in the rock and pop world could remember, the Beatles had met every challenge. Every time, every year, they raised the bar, outdoing themselves and everyone else. Not this time, not this year. The summer of love afterglow from Sergeant Pepper didn't last. Just a few weeks after Pepper's release, there came a devastating blow from which the Beatles never really recovered. I was scared. I thought, we fucking had it, said John Lennon when he was asked how he took the news. The Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, had been found dead of an alcohol and barbiturate overdose in his swanky London townhouse. Maybe John was overreacting a bit, but he wasn't wrong. Right away, cracks began to show, and without Brian as Go-Between and Arbiter, the cracks began to grow. The follow-up to Sergeant Pepper was Magical Mystery Tour, released at the end of 67. It was a decent record, but the Beatles were not in the business of making decent records, and the film project of the same name was a silly, disjointed effort, a critical and commercial flop. 1968 was their first setback ever, and because nature abhors a vacuum, the gossip and speculation started. It wasn't long before the bullshit started getting thick. It reached a bizarre nadir in 69 with the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory. That one got started, as best as we can tell, by a Michigan college student with way too much time on his hands. Uh, This guy concluded, based on a bunch of nothing, (laughs) that Paul McCartney was dead. Had been dead for a while, and some stand-in was taking his place. But here's the thing. With no tour to talk about, uh, not a lot of public appearances... And a long way between album releases, conditions were ripe for the cultivation of bullshit and bad takes. And not just in America. For the first time, the Beatles were getting negative press in the UK. The love affair between Fleet Street and the Beatles was over. The London papers treated the trip to India to see the Maharishi with a mixture of amusement and contempt. They ran high-profile stories about bad deals and business disputes, Paul's drug use, John's divorce. When John went public about his affair with Yoko Ono, the tabloids lost their shit. They reported wretched excess and wasted money at Apple Corps, the Beatles' new hippie boutique, slash record company, slash venture capital firm, slash artist collective, slash who knows what the fuck else it was. Apple was well-intentioned and idealistic, but it was a gigantic clusterfuck as a business enterprise. And as a consequence, the Beatles were in trouble financially, hemorrhaging money badly, overextended. For the first time, the Beatles seemed mortal, fallible. The band was bickering and losing focus. The press was critical. The fans were restless. Well-established, capable acts like the Rolling Stones and The Who and Jimi Hendrix were now nipping at their heels. Exciting new acts were popping up weekly in America and the UK. And the new album was still months away. But they were still the Beatles. And on August 26, 1968, they dropped the biggest-selling single of their entire career. 50 years later, it's still one of the biggest selling singles of all time.
0: Hey, June, don't make-
2: McCartney's long composition is sort of a pep talk for a boy who's feeling sad, John Lennon's young son, Julian. And then it builds and builds and builds into this magnificent, joyous sing-along anthem. That long repeat and fade right out at the end of Hey Jude, well, <laughs> forget about it, nobody's ever going to do that any better than the Beatles did. It was an instant worldwide smash. And Hey Jude stayed on the charts for years after its initial release.
0: Well, you know that it's a fool
2: it the Beatles had gone and done it again. Raised the bar for themselves and for everyone else. It was a welcome jolt of comeback success. Everybody pulled their socks up. Everybody put their foot down. But the boys couldn't pause to enjoy the success of Hey Jude. The summer of 68 was a day-after-day grind of tense, unhappy recording sessions at Abbey Road. Summer turned to fall, and the album still wasn't done. Eventually, these sessions produced the brilliant but uneven white album, Rush Released for the Holidays. Recording the White album actually soured the guys on working at their beloved home base Abbey Road Studios. Just too many bad vibes, too many bad memories in those rooms now. Hey Jude was recorded in July at Trident Studios. To that point, only the third time the Beatles recorded as a group at any facility other than Abbey Road.
0: I'm so tired. I haven't slept the wink. So My mind is on the blink. I
2: wonder... To follow up the sprawling, overly ambitious White album, Paul had an idea. Paul always had an idea. This one was pretty good. Go the other way. Do a back to basics recording project with the Beatles playing live in the studio as a four piece rock band minimal overdubs, no studio trickery, get out of Abbey Road, rent a rehearsal space, and work as a band. The sessions would be filmed as they went, culminating in a live performance of the new material, the first Beatles concert in nearly three years. The working title for the project was, appropriately enough, Get Back. Michael Lindsay Hogg, an American filmmaker who was currently very in with British rockers, was tapped to direct the film. Eventually, it was released in late 1970 as Let It Be. Most of the first part of the film was shot in early January of 1969 on a soundstage in Twickenham, a poor choice of venue. Twickenham was a big empty warehouse, cold and uninviting to the eye. It was a difficult commute through North London traffic just to get there, but the place was paid for and the crew was hired, so off they went to rehearse and film. Watching the first part of the Let It Be film is almost physical torture for us. The guys look weary and disengaged. They noodle aimlessly on different instruments, jam a bit on some oldies, work on something new for a few minutes, then lose focus, wander off for a while. Paul jabbers nonsense and pushes George around. George alternates between looking bored out of his mind and seriously pissed off at Paul. We now know that George was already holding back his best songs. His two offerings for the Get Back project were modest. A simple throwback tune for You Blue, which benefits from a nice arrangement featuring John playing slide guitar. The other song was the dreadful I Me mean Mine, one of the biggest groaners in the entire Beatles catalog. John's attention is almost entirely taken up by Yoko Ono. Yoko is a complete cipher, this weird sphinx like presence hovering in the background. Even cheery old Ringo looks like he would rather be home with Maureen and the kids. It's awful. This went on for a couple of weeks, including a tense three days when George Harrison quit and walked out, only to be coaxed back into the fold by Paul McCartney. Everybody had a good year. Everybody let their hair down. Getting out of that godforsaken, freezing cold soundstage was one of George's conditions for returning. Bringing in Billy Preston to play keyboards was another. George was decidedly cool on the idea of a live show, but he didn't put his foot down on that one. In spite of all the drama and infighting, all the bullshit, they had solid material to work with. Two McCartney classics, Get Back and Let It Be. Paul was also working on the long and winding road during those sessions. a couple of Lennon-McCartney collaborations, two of us, and I've Got a Feeling, and they were rehearsing some strong new offerings from John, Dig a Pony, Across the Universe, and Don't Let Me Down. That's a really good album right there. George figured he would hang on to his own songs and just settle in doing what he did back in the Liverpool days, play guitar, decorate, and fill out John and Paul's songs. And playing with Billy Preston, well, that was a nice little bonus for George. He'd been stretching out and playing with other musicians, notably Eric Clapton, for a while now. With George Harrison back, the new plan was take a week off, regroup, and resume the sessions in the cozy basement of Apple Corps World Headquarters.
0: Alexis uh, from Apple Electronics. Uh, I would like to say hello to all my brothers around the world and uh, to all the girls around the world and to all the electronic people around the world. Uh, and uh, that is Apple Electronics. Magic
2: Alex Martis was a goofball sycophant who had weaseled his way into the Beatles' inner circle over the last year. Alex according to himself, was an electronics genius who was building an incredible 72-track recording console for the Beatles, right there in the basement of Apple headquarters at 3 Savile Row in Mayfair, London, England. The Beatles had thrown enormous sums of money at Magic Alex to do this, but when they showed up on January 20th, 1969, looking to use the new facility, The basement at 3 Saville Row was a chaotic jumble of wires and non-functioning gadgets. There wasn't even a place to set up and play, let alone conduct a proper recording session. The guys took one look at what was supposed to be their expensive new recording studio, turned around, and walked back up the stairs. Everybody had a wet dream. Everybody saw the sunshine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They couldn't go back to Abbey Road. Too much bad mojo there. And every other studio in town was booked. So a pair of portable four-track consoles were borrowed from Abbey Road, loaded onto a truck, and rushed down to Apple headquarters. Under George Martin's supervision, a young apprentice engineer named Alan Parsons wired them up in the basement. Ken Mansfield, fresh off the plane from California, had just walked into the middle of all this. Ken is a lovely guy, and like us, he's an incurable romantic. Most rock and roll fans are. And Ken went back a long way with the Beatles. He met them on their first American tour. Ken was also a businessman, and a pretty good one. The executive VP in charge of Apple's American operations. It was his job to know stuff, to figure things out. And Ken could see it right away. There was trouble in paradise. Big trouble. But the Beatles were about to play a concert for the first time in 29 months, so the romantic side of Ken won the fight this time. On a cold January afternoon in London, Ken Mansfield, Beatles fan, was giddy with excitement as he ascended to the roof of Three Savile Row. John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Billy Preston were just a few steps behind him. (laughs) we <laughs>
0: Do me. Do me.
1: This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You've won best and
0: you've got it. The hottest band
1: in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture, technology, and rock and roll.
2: the show. Welcome back, diggers, to Rock and Roll Archaeology. I'm Christian Swain, the Rock and Roll Archaeologist, and your humble host. Just a quick plug for the network, Pantheon Podcast Network, that is, uh, where a lot of rock and roll goodness can be found beyond just this show. I believe there are over 25 different podcasts on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and the kicker is that all of them, yes, Every single one of them are strictly about music. No crime drama, no techie shows, no guru telling you how to lose 10 pounds, find a work-life balance, and meditate yourself into the top 1%. Nope, just sweet, sweet music. Go to PantheonPodcasts.com to find the treasure trove of podcasting paradise. Also, you can find this show and our sister podcast, Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview all kinds of musical guests on the Osiris Network. Go to OsirisPod.com. Warning, warning. We've got an error to tell you about and a correction to make. In Soul Sisters, episode 6 of Rock and Roll Archaeology, at the 1515 mark of the podcast, we located Motown headquarters on South Grand Avenue in Detroit. Motown's exact location in those days was 2648 West Grand Boulevard, which is the current home of the Motown Museum. We regret the error, and we thank our iTunes listener, Cruiser 143. ...for letting us know about it in his review. If you guys catch him, we'll fix him. Okay, let's set you up and get going. This is the first of two episodes where we will discuss 1969, an amazing and eventful year in rock history. Part one will handle the first half of the year, where we will keep checking on the Fab Four... Plus, we will spend the night or so with their friends slash rivals, the Rolling Stones, as they begin to turn into the world's greatest rock and roll band. Then we will leave the British Isles for America and beyond. (laughs) Diggers, it's a lot to unpack, so we'll get right into it. I give you episode 18, 1969, part one. Keith drove. Keith always drove. Keith was the cat who could maintain. Managed to drive even when he was seriously inebriated, which was often. Now, we don't endorse driving under the influence at all. Unless you're Keith Richards and you're not Keith Richards, so don't do it. Back in those days, Keefe liked to bomb around London in a 65 Bentley Silver Spur he called Blue Lena. It was a good car for driving fast at night, he recalled in his 2010 memoir, Life, which we really like and recommend. Blue Lena had a secret compartment installed for stashing drugs, which came in handy on more than one occasion. Keith has always been a car nut, a collector, and Lena was his prize. He even had it shipped to Africa so he could drive it around Morocco the previous summer and fall. In the late afternoon of June 8th in the year 1969, Blue Lena was purring her way down leafy suburban lanes south of London towards Cotchford Farm. Keith behind the wheel, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts along for the ride.
0: Take me to the station
2: Brian Jones was done as a Rolling Stone, all that was left was for Mick and Keith to break the news to him. And it wasn't exactly news. Intentionally or not, Brian had been pulling away from the band for a while, at least a couple of years. Beggar's Banquet, in our opinion, the first truly great Stones album, came out at the end of 68. Jumpin' Jack Flash was not on the album, but it came out of the same sessions at Olympic Studios in London. Brian played rhythm guitar on Jumpin' Jack Flash, the biggest hit yet from Jagger and Richards. That song we just played, No Expectations, features Brian Jones playing some gorgeous slide guitar. Brian did a bit of percussion and played a sitar track you can barely hear on Street Fighting Man, added some keyboard overdubs on a couple of tracks and sang some woot woos on Sympathy for the Devil. No songwriting credits. Two guitar tracks, some incidental bits, and a bunch of woot woots. Brian's total contribution to the Rolling Stones in 68-69 when they broke out big and became the world's greatest rock and roll band. To some extent, you can blame it on Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper. After he heard those records, Brian started losing interest in being a rock guitarist. So he played sitar on Painted Black and marimbas on Under My Thumb. The Mellotron keyboard fascinated him. Then strings. Then he got on a kick where he wanted to play the recorder on everything. up for sessions without his guitar, carrying an accordion, or a fiddle, or some African drum he found, or a sax he borrowed from somebody. Keith and Mick, sort of to their credit, tried to shift directions too. Tried to accommodate. Because it was the thing to do that year. In 1967, the Stones made a pair of lush, densely overdubbed albums soaked in LSD between the buttons and Their Satanic Majesty's Request. At times, it was musical brilliance. Oh, fucking great, but let's get real. The Stones were not playing to their strength here. We know what that is, pumping out dirty, gritty twin guitar rock and roll, uh, below-the-bell music, full of chunky riffs heavily influenced by Memphis soul and the Chicago blues. Beggar's Banquet was the album that brought them back around, reconnected the Stones to their American roots. And some new roots were growing. A new influence was creeping in, American country music, thanks to Mick and Keith's new pal... Graham Parsons. First, crossed paths in London in May of 1968. Graham Parsons was touring Europe with the Birds. In February, he replaced David Crosby after Cros was unceremoniously kicked out of the band. In his really good, thorough 2010 biography of Graham, David Meyer describes the Birds as a, a nest of vipers, Lord of the Flies with guitars. Birds and vipers and flies, oh my. Graham Parsons and the birds seemed like a good fit, and they were at first. Graham wrote his own songs. He was a strong singer, and on top of that, when he wasn't too wasted to play, he was a gifted multi-instrumentalist. He could provide an infusion of new material and beef up and fill out the birds' live sound. Right away, the other birds caught Graham's enthusiasm for country and bluegrass, blended with rock and soul and traditional blues, what we now call Americana.
0: Flat so swift, rain won't lift, it won't close, feelings froze, get your mind winter time you ain't going nowhere
2: Graham had his own name for it, Cosmic American Music. They went to Nashville and recorded a Dylan cover. Of course they did. <laughs> Some traditional country songs and a couple of Parsons originals. The project would become the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, released in the fall of 1968. Sweetheart was a great effort, highly influential in later years, probably the best overall album the Birds ever made, But the record company didn't like it, and the release got hung up. It ended up being a commercial flop. So the birds hit the road that spring to support a new album with a new direction that wasn't even in stores yet. And the response was underwhelming. Rock audiences didn't get it. Country audiences didn't get it either. They made history as the first rock band to play the Grand Old Opry in Nashville, but the gig was a drag. The crowd was hostile to these California hippie boys playing country music on the most hallowed stage in all the South. The Opry show was in March. Uh, by the time the tour reached Europe in May, the birds had mostly abandoned the crossover experiment with country music. For their live show, they fell back on the hits. Mm, give the people what they want. Graham Parsons was frustrated and already looking for the exit as the birds tour made its way into London. The gig that night was at a club called the Middle earth, the current place to be in swinging London. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were hard to miss as they swanned their way through the crowd right as the birds took the stage. For the London show, Graham was let off the leash for a couple of songs, and the ultra-hip London crowd got a taste of some Bakersfield road dust, courtesy of Graham Parsons.
0: Well, I pulled out of Pittsburgh, rode down the God, but wound up and she's a running. There's a speed trap ahead, alright, but I don't see a drop inside. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. I got ten forward gears and a to overdrive. I'm taking little White fields and my eyes are open wide. I just passed a Jimmy and wide I've been passing everything inside.
2: I was really going to see Roger McGuinn, Keith recalled many years later. But Graham was there, and they hit it off right away. They immediately became best pals, musical collaborators, uh, drug buddies, partners in crime. After the show, Mick and Keith and Graham piled into Blue Lena. They dropped acid and passed around a bottle of Johnny Walker while Keith zoomed up the back roads. They ended up in Stonehenge as the sun came up. Back in those days, you could park nearby and just walk right up to the Paleoliths any time you felt like it. So they piled out and wandered around Stonehenge in a psychedelic, liquored up daze while photographer Michael Cooper captured it for posterity. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Graham Parsons tripping together at Stonehenge. Rock and roll archaeology, friends, sometimes this shit just writes itself fucking great.
0: Childhood living is easy to do the thing.
2: Keith had been playing around with alternate tunings for a while. Along with Cooter, Graham was one of the folks who showed him what it was all about. In 69, he started writing songs in Open G tuning with the lowest string taken off, and that's been Keith's signature setup ever since. It lends itself to simple, strong riffing rather than complex shredding. But that was fine, because in June of 69, the Stones picked up a hotshot virtuoso guitarist, a talented youngster named Mick Taylor. Mick could cover the complicated stuff while Keith churned out the riffs. They were a great team, this other Mick and Keith, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards. Check out the intro to the first recording they made together. (laughs) that'll work that dirty sexy groove two guitars barking and snarling at each other while underneath it charlie watts swings and bill wyman keeps it all nailed to the floor vintage stones the perfect blend reason number one why we think beggar's banquet let it bleed sticky fingers and exile on main street are all just fucking amazing records even after 50 years Peak Stones, right here. There's a lot of good stuff before and a lot of good stuff after, but 68 to 72, holy shit. From Beggar's Banquet on through Exile, this is the sweet spot for the Rolling Stones, the sublime moment of their long recording career. So we begin the summer of 1969. Brian was out. Mick Taylor was in. June 8th, they made it official. We've talked about some of the creative issues, but really it came down to a cold-blooded business decision. Mick and Keith had been fighting a series of high-profile legal battles stemming from a drug bust back in 1967. After many hearings and appeals, they emerged victorious at the end of 1968. Fighting the establishment and coming out on top cemented their standing as anti-heroes, rock-and-roll bad boys, but the financial cost was staggering. They needed a big, profitable U.S. tour to get them whole again. Mick and Keith managed to wriggle their way out of prison time, but Brian couldn't stay out of trouble. He had been busted, again, for drug possession in the spring of 68, while he was serving probation on another matter. While Brian awaited trial, the U.S. State Department refused to issue him a visa. And that was that. If the Rolling Stones were going to have a future as a business enterprise, they had to tour. And that meant they had to cut Brian Jones loose. By most accounts, Brian took the news with a measure of equanimity. Uh, Philosophical about it was mixed description brian was probably just comfortably numb his drinking and drugging had escalated to truly alarming levels by 1969 mick told brian he could spin it any way he wanted for the public the following day brian's press agent issued a release that cited creative differences and described the breakup as amicable the financial arrangement was generous On top of a cash buyout, Brian would get an annual salary of £20,000 for as long as the stones were active in earning, which, as it turned out, has been a very, very long time indeed. If he could just stay out of trouble and maybe mind his money a little better, 27-year-old Brian Jones was assured a comfortable life hanging out by the pool at his Cotchford Farm estate. It was great having a place with a pool. Ever since he was a boy, Brian Jones had always loved to swim.
0: The worried aftermath of Brian's death had a dark momentum to it, just as the run-up had, as if there was an inevitability about it all. When Hartfield beat officer Albert V. Evans arrived at the scene shortly after midnight, he had a
2: policeman's instinct that he wasn't being given the full story, but had no evidence to support his feelings. That's Paul Trinka from his fine 2014 biography, Brian Jones, The Making of the Rolling Stones. Trinka is sympathetic to his subject, but he remains careful and objective when he discusses the circumstances surrounding Brian's death on July 2nd, 1969. He lays it all out and differentiates between known facts and speculation. Trinka then leaves the reader to draw their own conclusions. We highly recommend his book. Sam Cutler, a friend of the show and a rock-and-roll swashbuckler if there ever was one, Sam served as the Rolling Stones tour manager in 1969. Sam was, and still is, convinced it was foul play. At the very least, he says, and everyone agrees with this part, it was a slipshod, badly conducted farce of an investigation. The coroner's ruling was Death by Misadventure. The autopsy showed the drinking and drugging had taken a big toll. 27-year-old Brian had the heart and liver of a man at least twice his age. The autopsy also established Brian had been drinking heavily all day and taking a potent sedative called Mandrax. Brian was a strong swimmer, but... He'd never been a robust, healthy guy. He was severely asthmatic, and he didn't take care of himself at all. In 65, on the first Stones tour of America, he collapsed in Chicago and spent four days in hospital. In the summer of 68, just a year before he died, he'd been laid up for a month in a French hospital. That was one of Keith's big gripes. Brian couldn't stay healthy out on tour. Whenever Brian was out sick, Keith's onstage workload got doubled. It made plain shows a real drag, you know. If we apply Occam's razor here, then the coroner's conclusion does make sense. Brian Jones got shitfaced drunk and drowned in his backyard pool. Stupid, reckless, sad as hell, and not at all uncommon death by misadventure. Mick, Charlie, and Keith weren't there, but they knew Brian as well as anyone, and for decades now they have all steadfastly insisted it was an accidental death. Trinka goes into some detail about the alternate theory we find most credible. A bloke named Frank Thorogood, who was doing construction work at Cotchford Farm, got into a tiff that day with Brian over money. There was a scuffle by the pool, and Brian ended up dead. In his autobiography, Keith Richards allows for this possibility that it might have been manslaughter, an argument gone horribly wrong. Frank Thorogood was treated that same night for an injured wrist, and it is pretty astonishing that none of the cops bothered to ask him how he hurt it. Thanks to that kind of shoddy work by the police, we'll never know exactly what happened.
1: Jeff Dexter, a well-known DJ, was supposed to be the master of ceremonies, but there was no sign of him, so I took over microphone duties. King Crimson played, telex's Corners Band played. I'd never spoken in public before, but it didn't give
2: it a second thought and prattled away in hippie speak to the assembled masses, reminding them not to damage the trees and to be nice to one another. I was surprised at how
1: easy it was. I felt like I had half a million friends.
0: Try
2: sometimes, That's our friend Sam Cutler reading an excerpt from his 2010 book, You Can't Always Get What You Want, My Life with the Rolling Stones, The Grateful Dead, and Other Wonderful Reprobates. Up until July of 1969, Sam had been a knockabout kind of guy on the London music scene working for a management and promotion outfit called Black Hill. Sam was a shrewd organizer and at times a hard taskmaster, but he was also the son of the working class who pounded nails and hauled gear right alongside his stagehands. The Stones wanted to do a free outdoor show in Hyde Park on July 5th to introduce Mick Taylor, debut some new material, and warm up for the impending tour of America. Sam and Black Hill Management had organized a successful Hyde Park show for the new supergroup Blind Faith just a few weeks earlier, so they were tapped to pull off the event. Then came the devastating news of Brian's death. The Hyde Park show became a memorial service. Sam shifted gears without complaint, dealt with it, and handled things superbly. Half a million people gathered for the day, and there was nothing but good vibes, no hassles, no fights or injuries. Just a great summer day, with great music booming out over the vast lawns of Hyde Park in London. They even picked up their litter when it was over. The Stones' performance was sloppy and out of tune, but it hardly mattered. Emotion and conviction carried the day. They were the world's greatest rock and roll band, and Mick Jagger was host and master of ceremonies for the world's largest English garden party. After the show, Mick asked Sam, Would you be willing to leave Black Hill, and go on the road with us, and manage your American tour? Sure, Mick. I'd love to. <laughs> The used the basement studio at Apple headquarters as a rehearsal space in the week leading up to the Hyde Park show. The Beatles were back at Abbey Road, recording again with George Martin at the helm. So that June, the basement space was available for their friends slash rivals, the Rolling Stones. Not long after the rooftop show in January, Ken Mansfield flew home to L.A., the Beatles Get Back Project floundered. The rooftop concert caused a stir, anything the Beatles did caused a stir, but there was no follow-up, no album or film. They eventually released it as Let It Be the following year, after the Beatles broke up. So unless you happened to be an office worker or a shop assistant in Mayfair, the 42-minute concert on the roof was just another item in the newspaper, something that came and went, and... Got lost again in the rush of events as 1969 went forward. Ken was right there in the Let It Be film. He's the guy in the white coat sitting off to the side. And he is quick to say it was years later that he fully understood the significance of what he saw and heard on the roof that day. History had to render the verdict on the rooftop concert, and history, well, she takes her own sweet time about it. Back in 1969, winter turned to spring and no Beatles album. There were hundreds of hours of tape and film from the get back let it be project sitting on the shelf, but nobody could bring themselves to go through it and organize it into a film and a record. The whole thing just fizzled out. Months went by with little action or movement in Beatles' world. The buzz, the rumors, and speculation. Are the Beatles finished? That buzz became a deafening roar. March 12th, the world's most eligible bachelor, Paul McCartney, married Linda Eastman. On the 20th of March, John Lennon and Yoko Ono got married in Gibraltar. Their honeymoon was the famous week-long bed-in at the Amsterdam Hilton. John wrote a travelogue about the experience and set it to music. When he got back to London in April, John was eager to put the new song together, but George was off in America, and Ringo was busy doing a movie. So John Lennon rang up Paul McCartney. Do you fancy working on a new song with me? The two of them met up at Abbey Road and went to work. They cranked it out in seven hours. They divvied up the tasks. Paul played bass and drums and keys. John played all the guitar tracks and sang the lead vocal. From the first notes to the final mixdown, uh, they were done in time for afternoon tea. They worked together, finishing lines for each other, singing and playing eyeball to eyeball like they did as teenagers all those years ago on Aunt Mimi's porch in Liverpool. The ballad of John and Yoko was released just days later. Another top ten hit for the Beatles.
0: Mal string
1: of a kaput mouth. okay?
2: It got a bit faster Ningo. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: George.
0: Okay. okay Standing in the dockets of Hampton Trying to get to Holland the France. The man in the Mac says, you've got to go back. You know they didn't even give us a chance. Christ, you know it ain't easy. You know how hard it can be. The way things are going, they're going to crucify me.
2: The business and legal disputes, the resentments, feeling sick and tired of being sick and tired, uh, none of these things had gone away. In fact, these problems would only get worse as the year went forward. But working together on the Ballad of John and Yoko reminded John and Paul of an inescapable fact. They made an incredible team. That hadn't changed a bit and all the extraneous crap was far, far away when John Lennon and Paul McCartney made music together. They reached out to the other guys, and to George Martin, who had been rather unceremoniously pushed aside during the Get Back project. Martin was surprised at the call, and probably still a bit irked at how he had been treated, but he agreed to work with them again. He had one condition, none of that stripped-down, back-to-basic stuff. They were way past that now. This would be a Beatles album, a high-quality effort, carefully crafted at Abbey Road. George Martin's instincts were sharp as ever, and he sensed something special was about to come together. For let it be, but as we've seen, it was recorded afterwards. As such, it is the bittersweet musical chronicle of the Beatles' disillusion. But let's strip away that context for a moment and ignore the controversy and interpersonal drama that swirled around the group as they made the record, just considered the album on its own. Even by the ridiculously high standards the Beatles set for themselves, Abbey Road is a triumph, one of their very best albums, worthy of sitting on the shelf right next to *Sergeant Pepper or Revolver. Now, bring the context back in and think about Abbey Road some more. All this drama and all this pressure on them, the rancor, the resentments, the business disputes, none of that had gone away at all. But they worked together and made this brilliant record while they were hip-deep in that shit. <laughs> Talk about grace under pressure. Everything great about the Beatles is found here. Lots of variety. Innovative, yet hooky songwriting. Droll British humor. Suburb arrangements and studio craftsmanship. And because George Martin was back at the helm, it flows. Like Pepper and Revolver, Abbey Road is not just a collection of songs. It's an album, a coherent and satisfying listen all the way through. Something else that's remarkable about Abbey Road. George Harrison steps out at last from behind John Lennon and Paul McCartney. George's finest songs as a Beatle are found here. And they're just as good, if not better, than the Lennon McCartney offerings. there in the intro, underneath the churning acoustic guitars, a new sound. Something that will end up being a very big deal in the years to come. There are some earlier rock and pop recordings that made use of the synthesizer. We played an example in episode 17, Save the Life of My Child, from Simon Garfunkel's bookends. The Moog Music Synthesizer was first introduced to the world as a prototype at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Moog Electronics set up a booth on the fairgrounds to display their wares, and they were mostly ignored. Uh, but a few of the musicians, notably Pete Townsend of The Who, noticed and started keeping an eye on developments in electronic music. Music <laughs> In 1968, Wendy Carlos made an album called Switched on Bach that cracked the top ten, and it had legs. As late as 1972, Switched on Bach was still on the Billboard charts. Every sound on it was generated by a Moog synthesizer. By 69, the Moog modular was in production. If you had a ton of money and a lot of patience, you could order one from the factory in upstate New York. It was a bulky contraption with patch cords and dozens of knobs, like something out of a cheesy sci fi movie. It needed a lot of maintenance, and it was hard to keep in tune, even in the controlled studio environment. Only a few studios had a Moog in 1969, and even fewer really knew what to do with them. Enter the Beatles. They had always found new gadgets irresistible, and the Moog synthesizer at Abbey Road was no exception. George Harrison really got sucked in, and he spent many hours fiddling with the Moog and figuring it out during those sessions. Along with Here Comes the Sun, two other cuts on Abbey Road featured the Moog, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and John Lennon used it to create the white noise effect at the end of I Want You, She's So Heavy. So, it wasn't the first adoption, but it was an early adoption. And when the Beatles adopted something, so did everybody else. The timing couldn't have been better for Moog Electronics. A year after Abbey Road hit the stores, Moog introduced the Model D, or Mini Moog. It was a superb piece of engineering, a compact, affordable design, the first synthesizer available in retail stores. Rock keyboardists snap them up. Fifty years later, the Mini Moog's fat, distinctive analog sound is still prized by artists and producers. From this point forward, for better and for worse, the textures and tones of the keyboard synthesizer will be a key element in rock music. Okay, so we've been to Mayfair, and Sussex, and to Hyde Park, and Abbey Road, and we'll come back to England's green and pleasant land. Uh, For now, though, it's the summer of 1969, and we are headed to America and beyond. (music) During the last couple of episodes in our podcast, as we alternately roam and ramble and then rocket towards the end of the 60s, we've been looking mostly at the music, but we're also checking out politics and culture, especially in America, and, well, for the most part, at this point, things do not look good. The civil rights struggle was uplifting and long overdue, but it was only partially successful. By 1969, the inevitable backlash was already in full effect. Headlines shout, newscasters sadly shake their heads, stories of race riots, intergenerational resentment, unrest on college campuses, cult murders in the canyons. All the while, as a gruesome backdrop to all of the domestic strife, The war in Vietnam grinds on with no end in sight. Rock and roll and the larger society affect each other. They reflect back on each other. We keep saying that. There is no better example of this than the year 1969. The times are angrier, and the sound is tougher and louder. In two short years, we've gone from wear some flowers in your hair to up against the wall, motherfuckers. From All You Need Is Love to Gimme Shelter. We'll put a marker down. The highest highs and lowest lows of the entire rock era occur in 1969. It seems now like a decade's worth of shit was crammed into that 12 months. Much as we'd like to, we can't tell every story. We have to pick our spots. So we'll pick a bright spot, something so amazing and uplifting that 50 years later, just talking about it is enough to make hearts soar and imaginations explode. Let's come out of the valley, up to the sunlit highlands, to the peak, to the highest endeavor in all of human history. We'll begin right around the same time our rock and roll story begins. Thirteen months after Elvis shook his hips for 86% of the TV audience in America and launched rock and roll into the mainstream, on October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched a small object into Earth orbit. For 21 days, Sputnik 1 circled the Earth and beeped. Then the battery went dead and it stopped beeping. Sputnik stayed up there for two more months until the orbit decayed and the world's first satellite burned up, re-entering the atmosphere. Amateur astronomers could observe it easily with a pair of binoculars. You just had to know where to look. Christmas season, 1957, and there it is, the communist menace, hanging directly over American backyards. The space race was underway and America had missed the starting gun. It just got worse from there. The Russians had a substantial lead. It was downright humiliating how far ahead they were, the Soviets launched objects named Sputnik, then a dog named Laika, then a man named Yuri Gargarin, into space. Meanwhile, American rockets exploded on the launching pad. Uh, like, over and over, they exploded on the launching pad. America was behind, and half measures weren't going to close the gap. Time to push all the chips in to the middle of the table. Fortunately, the right guy was in charge. On September 12, 1962, on a warm, sunny day at Rice University in Houston, Texas, in front of 40,000 people, President John F. Kennedy made a bold announcement.
1: We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too.
2: But we love this part of American history, the early space race, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. ...and the first landing on the moon in the summer of 1969. And we'll list a ton of great resources in the show notes. We'll talk about space exploration some... ...but we'll talk more about how space exploration ripples back and forth... ...through the culture during the 60s. So, first, the political dimension. JFK and his successor LBJ were big cheerleaders of the space program. Uh, Nixon, too, for that matter. In Congress... There was a strong bipartisan consensus, so the space program was lavishly funded. It took a few years for the U.S. to catch up with the Soviets, but by 1967 or so, America passed them and never looked back. Right from the start, astronauts were American heroes, crew cut and laconic, brimming with what author Tom Wolfe called the right stuff. But it didn't stop there. The Pocket Protector Brigade got some love, too. Throughout the 60s, scientific achievement was a source of intense national pride for most Americans, and that was especially true in the field of aerospace. It was a very sexy field back then to study, to go work in, and a lot of young people did. To pull this off, to go in seven years' time, from rudimentary suborbital flight to landing on the moon and returning safely, to pull this off would require contributions and feats of imagination from the artist as well as the engineer. There's political will, so there's money to burn, and the cultural momentum was there as well. The appetite was... (laughs) Galactically huge, and not just in America. Young people all around the world wanted space exploration stories and themes. So, of course, artists and entertainers started working with these ideas, commenting on them, telling stories. We're trying to sell some tickets here, are we not? Science fiction goes mainstream, right here, right alongside rock and roll. It becomes a literary genre to take seriously. Major works like Dune, Stranger in a Strange Land, and Childhood's End are all published in the mid-60s, and they became huge bestsellers. The sight of a touch, or the scent of a sand, or the strength of an oak with roots deep in the ground. The one flowers to be covered and then to burst up through tarmac to the sun again, or to fly
0: to the sun without burning a wing, to lie in a meadow and hear the grass sing, to have all these things.
2: Through the 1960s, science fiction literature grew in popularity. It was picking up speed, and each successive news story about spaceflight was like, uh, well, rocket fuel. Sci-fi blasted off in the mid-60s, and just like rock and roll, it quickly pushed its way into mainstream film and television. At the end of 1968, while Apollo 8 circled the moon, Hollywood put out the first big-budget sci-fi epic, 2001, a space odyssey. And of course, there was this. Space, the final frontier.
1: These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations to boldly
2: go where no man has gone before. Star Trek wasn't the only show about space travel in the 1960s. There were a bunch of them. And it wasn't a big hit. Not a lot of people watched the original Star Trek. It only lasted three seasons, fall of 66 to the spring of 69. But in that short little span... The people who did watch Star Trek got a big dose of secular humanist thinking. In between Kirk fighting Lizard men and Spock doing the Vulcan death grip, some very forward-thinking, sometimes downright radical, social and political ideas were examined and modeled on Star Trek. Stuff you don't see or hear much in mainstream media, uh, even today... We're still not entirely sure how they got away with it. Star Trek presented an egalitarian utopia, a united world, a post-scarcity, money-free, multicultural paradise that was also part of a larger community. It was some serious socialist hippie shit. Laugh at the cheesy sets and groan at the corny acting, Uh, but you gotta love the Trek. It put a big social and cultural marker down, and it ended up being a very big deal over time. Scotty, beat me up. Starting right around the same time as Star Trek, uh, back over in the UK, we see the beginnings of progressive rock. Soft Machine, The Moody Blues, King Crimson, early iterations of Yes and Genesis started putting out albums that pulled themes and stories from sci-fi and fantasy. Now, these British bands weren't influenced by Kirk, Spock, and their diverse American crew, but they did have their own sci-fi television, most notably the enduring Doctor Who series. Far more fantasy than sci-fi and less interested in making social commentary than Trek, Doctor Who, with its titular Time Lord hero, bounced around in a wayback machine disguised as a London police phone booth through space and time even more action-adventure than Captain Kirk and Company, the doctor would fight all sorts of highly imaginative evils on the BBC, while he, as any good doctor might, helped the less fortunate. Withdrawal eccentric personalities of a benevolent English lord and played by a new actor every few years, the Time Lord, with his equally very English companions, would fight Dalek's Cybermen and even their very own lizard men. Interestingly, it was originally conceived as an educational show for kids in 1963. These new upstart rockers were raised on the doctor. It was deep in their DNA by 1969. So, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, David Crosby, the San Francisco bands like The Airplane and The Dead, lots of rockers on both sides of the Atlantic, avidly read and watched science fiction. man on the moon then surely we can we remember hearing it back then from teachers and parents from commentators and politicians it's an engagingly naive way to see things and a lot of people were caught up in it and why not it's nice to feel hopeful and proud to feel optimistic but it wasn't all gee whiz it wasn't all celebration The space race also inspired expressions of alienation and anger, of disaffection and loss of innocence. Of course it did. It was 1969 in America.
0: A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. 10 years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's upping me, because Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up, and as if all that crap wasn't enough, a rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. Was all that money I made last year
2: for Whitey. That whole if-we-can-put-a-man-on-the-moon business? <laughs> Gil Scott Heron's scathing compare-and-contrast beat poem turns the whole narrative on its head. There was another response in song, released just days before Apollo 11 launched. It was not angry, more sadly disaffected, emotionally detached. It tells a nuanced little story, with telling details like check ignition, and may God's love be with you. We were kind of startled to learn that the BBC used David Bowie's space oddity as bumper music during its coverage of Apollo 11. David was startled, too. He had no idea until he turned on his telly to watch it, along with hundreds of millions of his fellow Earthlings. On one level, it's not surprising. It sounds dreamy and cosmic. The audio is beautiful, perfect for soundtrack use. But the story it tells is, uh, well, it's an oddity. An odd background for news coverage of a technological triumph. David's tune describes not a space oddity, but rather what a NASA engineer would call a space catastrophe. Your circuit's dead. There's something wrong. Contact is lost, and Major Tom embraces his lonely fate. Planet Earth is blue, and there's nothing I can do, and is left to float forever in space. It's a strange fascination from an artist who will deliver a lot of those in years to come. David embarked on his musical career right about the same time JFK announced America would embark on a seven-year program to put a man on the moon. Seven years into a lackluster career as a folk singer, David set a sci-fi storied song. The song ends up being his first hit, and the soundtrack to The Moonshot... Looking back on it, uh, there's a certain inevitability to it. Seems like more than mere coincidence. David's working title for the song was Major Tom. He recorded it in early 1969 when 2001 A Space Odyssey was a big hit in theaters. David was staying in his little flat near Kensington and he and his buddy Tony Visconti would get good and stoned and then sneak into the local theater to watch 2001 over and over. Dave,
0: I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
1: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking
0: about, now? Ground control to Major Tom
1: Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control Nine, to
0: made it Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on.
2: Anyhow, the marketing geniuses at the record company like the cute little play out words Space Odyssey, Space Oddity, get it? so they put it out as a single. It did well right away in England, but it was a few years before it hit big in America. We'll get to know David Bowie a lot better in later chapters. Uh, This is just a quick intro. We'll take a minute to point this out though. David was often out in front of his audience, a little bit ahead of his time. It would prove to be both a blessing and a curse for him throughout his career. Not all that surprising, really. According to Bowie biographer Jason Heller, young David Jones lived and breathed science fiction. Starman Jones by Robert Heinlein was the first novel he ever read at the precocious age of seven. Perhaps even back then he saw himself as Starman Jones, an early iteration of Ziggy Stardust or The Man Who Fell to Earth.
1: T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
2: The Saturn V booster roared. At the pinnacle of this gigantic, barely-contained explosion, three men were packed into a tiny module with about the same amount of personal space as a compact car. A million people surrounded Cape Kennedy on a hot, muggy Florida morning and watched the launch of Apollo 11. At least a half a billion more watched on television. 400,000 men and women had worked seven-plus years on the Apollo project, and now it was down to just three men to see it through. Service and Command Module Pilot Michael Collins, Lunar Module Pilot Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Commander Neil Armstrong. The man picked to be the first human to set foot on another celestial body. It was a three-day journey to the largest visible object in the night sky, our closest celestial companion. The crew cycled through their procedures, attaining high orbit, recovering the lunar module from its shroud and docking with it, and the critical maneuver they called Translunar Injection. If the Translunar Injection was miscalculated or off in any way, The three Americans would go hurtling past the moon into the deep cold of interplanetary space towards a fate not unlike that of Major Tom. All the while, hundreds of millions down below lived through every tense moment as it was continuously televised around the world. we 30 orbits of the moon looking over the proposed landing site. Then it was determined by the crew and by mission control, the landing mission was a go. Listen, uh, Tranquility
1: Base here. The Eagle has landed.
2: For three and a half hours, the world waited as Armstrong and Aldrin went through their checklists finally the eagle was depressurized the hatch was opened and at 02:51 utc on july 21st 1969 neil armstrong stepped onto that short ladder to the surface while still on the ladder armstrong paused and uncovered a plaque bearing an image of earth and the inscription here men from the planet earth first set foot upon the moon July 1969 AD, we came in peace for all mankind. At 0256, Armstrong fulfilled the promise of that inscription and stepped onto the moon.
1: I'm gonna step off the laminate. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for man. One giant
2: oh. for mankind. Nineteen minutes later, Buzz Aldrin stepped out of the lunar module. As the two astronauts witnessed Earth rise from the surface of the moon, Aldrin looked across the lunar landscape, now bathed in reflected light from his homeworld and waxed poetic. Beautiful, beautiful, magnificent desolation. He breathed out over the open comm circuit. Roger, tranquility. Came the terse, laconic response from mission control, and the two men resumed their work, collecting samples, setting up experiments, planting a flag. The moonwalk lasted two hours and 36 minutes, less time than it takes to watch 2001, a space odyssey, all the way through. Once Armstrong and Aldrin were back in the lunar module, the world held its breath again. Getting there was one thing. Now, what about getting home? Another short countdown and the tiny lunar module lifted off into moon orbit, where it reunited with the command module. Once Armstrong and Aldrin climbed back aboard, the lunar module was unceremoniously ejected, left to crash into the lunar surface. The long voyage home began, and on July 26th, Apollo 11 splashed down in the Pacific. The celebrations began in America and around the world, culminating in the largest ticker-tape parade in New York history. A delirious outburst that brought the entire city to a halt that day. Robert Heinlein, the author of Starman Jones and Destination Moon, appeared as a guest on the CBS Network's coverage of the moonwalk. This is
1: the greatest event in all the history of the human race up to this time. This is, today is New Year's Day of the year one. If we don't change the calendar,
2: historians will do so. It was far from over the Apollo program, but the next six missions got nowhere near the attention that Apollo 8 and Apollo 11 received. There was a special kind of heroism to the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission, but really it wasn't until the 1995 movie came out that it came to represent anything notable in the popular culture. Houston, we have a problem. We'll take a moment and point out that the follow-up Apollo missions were even more remarkable. But it's too bad they got largely overlooked. Just two years after Armstrong and Aldrin cautiously tiptoed around for a couple of hours on a single bland acre of lunar real estate, the Apollo 15 landing team of Dave Scott and Jim Irwin spent three full days living on the moon. The two astronauts spent seven hours at a stretch in spacesuits, working outside the lunar module. They drove a battery-powered rover for miles across the lunar surface. They even drove up the side of a moon mountain to collect rock samples that are almost as old as our solar system. Their exploits on the lunar surface were broadcast back to Earth in living color, with good resolution and clear, crisp audio it was an incredible feat of exploration that was surpassed twice more by Apollo 16 and by the final mission, Apollo 17, in 1972. But nobody named a park or a junior high school after Jim Irwin or Dave Scott. That's just how it goes.
0: She packed my bags last night flight Zero hours
1: Time,
0: flight.
2: All this science I don't understand. It's just my job. Five days a week. A Rocket Man. The larger point here, the point that Elton John and Bernie Toppin illustrated very artfully with Rocket Man, is that within just a couple of years, it had become routine. Mainstream culture shrugged and moved on after the peak experience of Apollo 11 and that moon-crazy summer of 1969. A little earlier in this chapter, we described three different attitudes, three different cultural responses to the moon landing. First, the breathless gee-whiz response seen in the mainstream culture, the eagle has landed and ticker-tape parades. Then, Gil Scott Heron's bitterly angry beat poem, Whitey on the Moon, stands in for the counterculture's own trenchant response. Finally, we have an offering from a newcomer, David Bowie, with its detached, perhaps even a bit jaded, point of view. We find it interesting that David's take on it seems to be the one that endured, the one that got picked up on the most by other artists. Like we said, David had a knack for being out in front of things. As the 60s ended and the 70s began, space exploration provided rocket fuel to the imaginations of these up-and-coming rockers like David Bowie and Elton John. Throughout the 70s, rock fans will stay hungry for sci-fi content and themes in their favorite music. An entire new genre, progressive rock, begins here. The prog rock sound is made possible by technical advances like the keyboard synthesizer, and its content is informed and shaped largely by science fiction and fantasy themes. We'll have a lot more to say about prog rock in future chapters. For now, though, we'll just note this. Even a celebratory folk song written about a summer festival in upstate New York made use of sci-fi language and imagery. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. (laughs) ¶¶ said we're going down to Yaskert's farm gonna join in a rock and roll band gonna get back to the story in our very next chapter i'm christian swain and this is the rock and roll archaeology podcast thanks for listening don't take the brown acid and we'll see you next time at woodstock keep up the rockin'
0: we are <laughs>
1: rock and roll archaeology podcast is produced and hosted by christian swain written by richard evans and christian swain all sound design and incidental music by jerry Danielson. find all of our shows notes social and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts all songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the R N R A P. We are on Instagram at rnrarchaeology. N R Archaeology. Tweet us at R N R Archaeology.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.